Father, we give you this time. We praise you for being our God, for being so faithful. And we ask that Jesus be Lord over our worship this morning. And Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts. Open the eyes of our understanding to who you are, to who we are in Christ, to the hope that we have in Christ, to the inheritance we have in Christ. And I pray you conform us more and more to the image of your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, and as he came up, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, and he heard a voice from his Father in heaven. Now, the Father in heaven could have said anything to Jesus. He could have said, go evangelize the world, fulfill my law, do the right thing, or when you die, don't be afraid, I'm going to bring you back, you know. But instead, he didn't tell Jesus to do anything. He spoke to him at the genesis of his ministry about his identity. And the father, it wasn't Joseph, his earthly father, but his heavenly father says to him in Matthew 3, this is my beloved son. He didn't just say you, he said this. He wanted everybody to know who Jesus was. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Interestingly, God declared this blessing over Jesus of love and acceptance before he preached a sermon, called even one disciple, walked on water, performed a miracle, completed his father's will, died on the cross. God wanted everyone present to hear what he thought about Jesus. Right after this, Jesus, as you know, was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and the devil tempted him based upon his identity. If you are the son of God, you'll do this. If you are the son of God, you'll do that. But Jesus knew who he was. He didn't have to prove who he was to Satan or anybody else. And in moments of temptation, if we remember who we are in Christ, it will strengthen us that we don't have to prove to anybody in the world who we are if we know who we are in him. When Jesus comes back by the power of the Holy Spirit, he goes to Nazareth, his own hometown. He stands up in the synagogue and communicates that he is the Messiah, and they try to kill him. First day of ministry, attempted murder on Jesus. But Jesus knew who he was, and he walked through the crowd by the power of the Holy Spirit and continued his ministry. The rejection of his own hometown did not thwart him because he knew he was his father's beloved son. Over the next three years, when his disciples doubted him, when Jesus was falsely accused, when he was criticized by his family, his followers, his enemies, Jesus stood firm. He knew who he was. They claimed he was out of his mind. They claimed he had a demon. They called him a glutton, a drunkard, a Samaritan. Jesus didn't flinch. He knew who he was. Jesus did not base or alter his own sense of identity based upon what other people thought about him or what they said about him. He didn't let people's opinions of him alter his understanding of his identity. The same night that Peter is vowing that he would die for Christ, Judas is out betraying him. Jesus, it says in John chapter 2, did not entrust himself to people because he knew what was in their hearts. He did not need anyone to testify about him, it says, for he knew himself and he knew what was in man. Jesus' entire life and ministry was based upon his God-given 
identity. And it also communicates to us that we must be grounded securely in our understanding of our identity in Christ. If we're going to do God's will, if we're going to be strong in temptation and strong under the pressure or against the attacks of this world. Christians are becoming increasingly persecuted around the world and in America. This generation will not survive if we don't know who we are in Christ. We have to be strong when we're rejected. We have to be strong when we're betrayed. We have to be strong when we fail to realize that our identity doesn't come from even our failures. Jesus' situation also communicated that he let the Father communicate his identity. Not his feelings, not his accomplishments. And it communicates to us too that we must let our Heavenly Father define us. Nothing else in culture but God and God alone. We live in a digital generation constantly bombarded with random and opposing messages about what defines us. There's mass confusion about gender identity in our culture. People not letting God define them but their feelings or their desires. There's racial confusion in identity, national identity issues, sexual identity issues, political identity issues, religious and spiritual identity issues. It is a core foundational part of our lives. And if we don't get that right, it can mess up every other area of our lives. A person who does not understand his or her identity is like a football player who doesn't know their position or the team they're on. Running out on the field, constantly chasing different people or the ball, tackling people from either team, confused. Everybody's frustrated with them. And they may say, well, quit judging me. I'm trying to do my best here. This is what I feel like doing. <laughs> but their behavior is not the core problem. Oftentimes, we're attacking people because of their behavior. But if you don't know who you are, you're confused about what's right and what's wrong. So how do we see that played out in the real world? All of us are born not knowing who we are, and all of us grow up hearing Various things about who we are from our parents. If you had parents that were affirming and loving, you may have a sense of that you're loved. If you had a father that never told you he loved you or you were abused in a situation, abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse, communicates very loudly to your emotions that you're worthless or you're not important and you're not valuable. And a lie can come to us in the midst of the emotion of what we go through. I remember sitting in a golf cart in Columbus, Georgia, as we were working on a movie. And a friend of mine, who'd been a friend for over a decade, begins to cry. And he said, my wife is in depression and she's now having suicidal thoughts and we don't know what to do. He said, she's the leader of our women's ministry at our church. He said, she's a great wife and she's a great mom. But recently, our youngest child graduated from high school and is going off to college, and we're realizing my wife's identity was wrapped up in her role as a mom. And now that that's being taken away, she doesn't know what to do. Now, does the Lord love her? Yes. Does she understand her identity in Christ? No. And because of that, even though she's a believer, her misunderstanding of her identity is tested when something is taken away. I remember talking to a young man who knew the Lord, loved the Lord, but his addiction to pornography caused him to question his salvation. 
And because of that, he struggled with sharing his faith or walking in joy. And when he discovered his identity in Christ, for the first time, he was able to walk away from the pornography. To realize, I am forgiven. I am chosen. I am loved by God. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he began to live with the joy of the Lord. And now he's serving in ministry and God's doing a great thing in his life. I know that men, many times when they retire, if their identity is wrapped up in their job, and now, why do I get out of bed in the morning? Why am I here? What's my value? If you don't have an identity separate from this world, separate from circumstances, you're going to be in trouble. So where is your identity today? Is it in something that can be taken away? Is it in your appearance? Is it in your accomplishments? It is in your job. Hi, I'm Stephen. I'm a filmmaker. Hi, I'm Jim. I'm an executive pastor. Hi, I'm Ken. I'm a supermodel, you know. (laughs) Some of us age, some of us don't. So I want us to look at the book of Job this morning because Job, we can learn a lot about identity from the book of Job. Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Who is Job? Let's find out. And that man was blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep. That's a lot of sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man, watch this, was the greatest of all the men of the East. He's the goat of his time. So up on the screen, who is Job? Based on these verses, he's a blameless man of faith and integrity. He's not perfect, but he's upright. He's a blessed father of 10 children. He's a successful employer with many servants. He's a rich investor with a huge portfolio. And he is the greatest of all men of the East. Verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Notice how God defines him. My servant Job belongs to me. For there is no one like him on the face of the earth. It's interesting to me. He didn't just say no one like him in the east. He said the whole earth. God knew everybody on the earth. And God knew Job. Now watch how God describes him at this point. He doesn't point out his portfolio or his wealthy investments or his camels. He says, Job is blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. This is the most important thing to the Lord. Then Satan, which means accuser, answered the Lord. Does Job fear God for nothing? Is he doing all this just for no reason? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has? It's like three hedges here. And on every side, 
You have blessed him, the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. What he puts his hands to turns to gold, and his investments on the side are turning to gold. And God is protecting him and his household and all of his possessions. Satan knew a lot about Job, too. Have you noticed that? As soon as God says, have you considered him? Satan knew all about Job. But then Satan says, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, behold, he, now he didn't say, I'm going to go attack him. He opens up the hedge. He says, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now, between verses 12 and 13, there's a whole lot of satanic scheming going on. God said you can do whatever you want to, and notice Satan didn't bless him with more. He's ready to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's scheming now that the hedge is gone. He didn't attack him that day. When is the best time, the most opportune time, to attack Job to do the worst damage? An evil day was being planned. Look at verse 13. Now, on the day, this is the day that Satan has picked. On the day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. Robbed. He's got four different types of investments here, and two of them just got robbed. And he says, They also slew the servants. So they killed your employees with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell them. Why didn't Satan kill that guy? He needed an evil messenger to show up on an evil day to communicate an evil report to a man he wanted to derail. While he was still speaking, notice the timing, another also came and said, the fire of God from heaven came and fell and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. This could have been lightning. We don't know what it was. He's blaming God, but we know it was Satan that was sending this. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Same situation. Satan made sure there was at least one person that survived to be an evil messenger back to Job. While he was still speaking, another came also. The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, if you go back and look at the value of Job's possessions, these stealings, robbings, destroyings are increasing in momentum. The snowball is getting worse and worse and worse with what's happening to him. And now here's the clincher. Here's the knockout punch. While he was still speaking, another came also and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now let me ask you a question. Who is Job now? Is he a blessed father of ten children? Not anymore. Is he an employer with many servants? 
No, he now has four servants left. And I seriously doubt they're going to stay on. Is he a rich investor with a huge portfolio? No, his portfolio was stolen and went up in flames. Now he has funerals to plan and rubble to clean up. Is he the greatest of all men of the East? No, really the opposite at this point. He's now going to have the reputation of the captain of the Titanic. Not good for him. So in one evil day, the greatest business mogul of his day becomes the greatest disaster story. And Job has been stripped down to bare minimum where he feels like nothing and he feels like he has nothing. Now let me ask you a question. What if this was you? What if an atomic bomb went off in Albany, Georgia, and your family was killed, and your job, and your possessions, and your home, and your church family, and you lost everything? And then you're no longer a parent, or a spouse, or a friend, or a church member, or a Sunday school teacher, or an employer, or employee, whatever. It's all gone. Who are you now? Does that kind of thing happen? It happens all over the world all the time. How did Job respond? Verse 20. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and he worshipped. And remember, Satan's watching. He's been scheming. He has sent all of these things in, the fire, the wind, the, the attacks of different... He schemed all of this at just the right time to hit him. Am I going to knock him out? Is he going to curse God? But he says Job fell to the ground and he worshipped. Now he's down to bare minimum. Here's his portfolio now. Naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked I shall return. I have nothing. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Does he curse God? Blessed. With tears in his eyes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And when those words were spoken, Satan lost. His schemes failed. His accusations against Job proved to be wrong. Because when Satan said, if you take all this away, he will curse you. Satan doesn't know the future. He's an accuser. God does. Do you think Job felt very valued at this point? Do you think he felt loved? Do you, do you think he felt like God was pleased with him? Not at all. Was he loved? Absolutely. Did God value him? Absolutely. Was God pleased with him? Absolutely. Did God have plans to use this for his glory? Absolutely. Was this a picture of Jesus? Absolutely. Chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered and said, from roaming about the earth and walking on it. I love verse 3. Here we go. The Lord said to Satan... Have you considered my servant Job? He's doing, <laughs> he hasn't cursed me. For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. I want you to notice something. 
chapter 2, verse 3, what we just read, is identical to chapter 1, verse 8, when God described Job before the attacks of the enemy. When Job was suffering and cursing the day of his birth, God still loved him. What's interesting to me is Job had two identities. He had an identity on earth, and he had an identity in heaven. His identity on earth changed a lot. His identity in heaven did not change at all. Which one is more important? The one from the eyes of men or the one that comes from the heart of God? Which one is lasting? What is in this vapor of the life that we have now? Or what God does in our life? Job has two identities. There's an eternal one and a temporary one. You are not defined by this world. You're not defined by your feelings. Feelings are powerful, but they are not reliable sources of truth. Your feelings are one of the most shallow parts of who you are. Just because something feels true does not make it true. I can feel like it's snowing in Las Vegas right now. Paul will verify it's not. Feelings are followers, they're not leaders. They're the caboose, not the engine. Here's what's interesting about feelings. They're not a good gauge on determining what's true, but they can help you discover what your heart is believing, whether or not it's true or not. If you realize that feelings are exposing beliefs, not truth, then I can realize I don't need to always follow my feelings. God is using them as the dashboard on my heart to expose things I'm believing. People think if I don't feel loved, I must not be loved. If something feels good, it must be good. If I feel like I'm right, I must be right. If I feel like God hates me, then he must hate me. If I feel worthless or like I should hurt myself or someone else, then maybe I should. This line of thinking is faulty. It's backwards. A lie will feel true if you choose to believe it. A hypochondriac can mentally assume that they're sick all the time and they can make themselves feel sick when they're not sick. A person who worries a lot can have fearful feelings come over them as if evil has already happened when no evil has happened. So we must realize there's this cycle that can be formed with our feelings and our thoughts. Experiences can also be liars. If someone hurts you, crushes you, and you start to believe that you're worthless and unloved, then you'll start feeling worthless and unloved when the opposite is true. Your feelings will follow your beliefs. So whether it's through the cutting words of a critic or being openly rejected by a friend, feelings can be like a fertilizer on a lie that you're considering, and those feelings can help that lie take root. And when that lie takes root, when it's planted, it will reinforce more feelings. Angry thoughts lead to angry feelings, which lead to angry thoughts. Depressing thoughts lead to depressing feelings. They're handcuffed together. So if we realize we're not defined by these things, I must take the thoughts that I'm thinking 
And I must not believe everything I think or everything I hear or everything I feel. I must filter it through absolute truth and throw out what does not line up with the word of God. And what consistently happens is when people believe the word, they're set free by it. They're not pulled into bondage. They're pulled into freedom. So you're not defined by what has happened to you. If you have been abused, you are not defined by that. You're not defined by what you have done in the past if it's under the blood of Jesus Christ. You're not defined by your job because it can be taken away. You're not defined by your wealth or your bank account or your portfolio. People call it your net worth. God defines your net worth. And you're not defined by the opinions of this world or the opinions of others or your enemies or your Facebook friends or your Instagram stories or your Twitter followers. The opinions of people are varied and contradictory. Your mom will look at your third grade report card and tell you how smart you are, but then your older brother sees you drip ketchup on your shirt and he tells you you're a total idiot. (coughs) Your football coach gives you a high five and calls you a winner and your ex-girlfriend posts online you're the world's biggest loser. Try releasing a movie. Read the reviews. One review, greatest movie I've ever seen in my life, I've seen it six times. The next review, absolute most embarrassing piece of life-sapping garbage ever put on screen. Even if a criticism is true, and even if you did fail and produce a horrible movie, you're not defined by that. You're defined by God 100%. He alone has perfect knowledge of you. He knows accurately everything about you. And he's been with you your entire life. He can hear your heart beating and your eyes seeing. He knows the exact number of hairs on your head, even if you're bald. God has no problem counting to zero. Or for infinity, for that matter. He remains the reigning resident expert on all things related to you. And he doesn't just know you. He owns you. The creator gets to define his creation. It says in Isaiah, thus says the Lord, your creator, do not fear. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You're mine. In a generation that claims my body, my rights, my choice, anytime they want to justify sin, God's word reminds us that these conclusions are based upon a complete lie about ownership. Anytime you or I argue with God about anything, we should remember he owns us. End of discussion. And he has all authority. He's established his throne in the heavens. He has the authority to define you and me. The culture will seek to define us as if they have authority when they don't. Other people will seek to define us. But only the God who made us and loves us and redeemed us and has perfect knowledge of us can define who we are. You are who he says you are, period. So how does God define you? I want to know when I look at Job's life, I could look at my life on this earth, which can be completely taken away in that identity, but what is my heavenly identity? What if we could look up into heaven and peel back the curtain as we did in Job's situation, wouldn't it be really cool if we could hear what our heavenly father says about our identity? 
Because that's the real us, the eternal us. Well, we can. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. God allows us to discover our heavenly identity. Not what the world says about us, but what he says about us. Verse 3. Praise be to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is all to the praise of God, what's about to, what we're about to talk about. It's all about him who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There we go. Now you're telling me what's going on in heaven and what I'm like in heaven and what my identity is in heaven. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. So, up on the screen, let me summarize this quickly. In Christ, if Jesus is your Lord, then God is your Father. It says in Ephesians 1, when you heard and believed the gospel, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I don't know whose daddy you have on earth, but if you have believed the gospel, if any man, if any woman is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You are now a beloved child of God. In Christ, every believer in Jesus Christ, you say, well, I don't feel like that's true. Feelings don't matter. In Christ, you are a beloved child of God. The people of Ephesus adopted children. They had greater rights than the biological children. They were chosen by their parents, and they could not be disowned or abandoned. In verse 4 through 6, he says, you're chosen and adopted. He chose you. He adopted you. Now, with this adoption comes this whole package deal. When my wife and I adopted Mia, she went from being a Chinese citizen with nothing that she owned to being our beloved daughter with equal love Equal rights, equal inheritance as our other children. Equal blessing. Verse 3 says we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. You have the same blessings Billy Graham has. You have the same blessings Charles Spurgeon has. You have the same blessings Michael Catt has. You have the same blessings. Pick anybody. You have the same blessings Jesus has. Because you're a joint heir with Christ. Then he says you're redeemed and you're forgiven of all of your sins. This is part of the package deal. The adopted children, their debts are paid as part of the adoption. Jesus paid all of your spiritual debts with his death on the cross. If Jesus is your Lord, you're also saved and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Verse 13. Where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, chapter 2, verse 10 says... So you're also God's uniquely gifted worker. Now, I want you to look up on that screen. When you're tempted, this is what you need to remember. When you're criticized, 
this is what you need to remember. When you fail, this is what you need to remember. When you get the divorce papers, when you get the pink slip, when you find out you have cancer, this is what you're going to remember. Because this is what matters, Job. In those moments, in the evil day, be strong in who you are in the Lord in the evil day. The schemes of the enemy, he's coming against you. He's not just randomly throwing lies at you. He's specifically attacking your identity in Christ. Do you believe in your heart that you are the beloved child of God? That you're forgiven and you're blessed? Just in the last two years, this has transformed my thinking. At other times when I would get down when something bad would happen, the Lord's like, remember, hey, remember who you are. And I would just start going, Lord, I thank you that I'm your beloved son. I don't deserve it. It's because of Jesus. It's because of your grace. I didn't earn it. I thank you that I'm chosen. I'm blessed. I'm redeemed. I'm forgiven. I'm sealed by your Holy Spirit. I'm your uniquely gifted worker, Lord. Be strong in who you are in the Lord. This is who you are. Mia didn't just get an identity, she got an inheritance. Things came with her identity. And it says in Scripture, what do we have in Christ? I'm going to just go through this quickly. You have a perfect, loving Father now. You have the Holy Spirit's presence and power in your life. You have hope and a home in heaven waiting for you. As you're getting older, as your eyesight is fading, as your friends are dying, as the world is falling apart, you can have hope in your heart and look forward to heaven that we have. It's part of our inheritance. We have a rich, equal inheritance. We're joint heirs with Christ. Repeatedly in the book of Ephesians, he talks about the unfathomable riches of Christ the riches of his grace, the riches of his mercy. We have, we're joint heirs with Christ. We're seated with him. Chapter 3 says you have access now to God in prayer. When you believed in Jesus, you got God's phone number, <laughs> and you can call it all day, every day. And he answers and listens. Unlimited power and resources are at our disposal. Mercy and grace. And Ephesians 3 says he can do more than you can ask or imagine. You also got a spiritual family and a spiritual gift. Chapter 4 says. The church. When your family rejects you, you have a spiritual family. There are many people all over the world whose families reject them when they give their lives to Christ. And they have a spiritual family around the world. Joined in Christ. So with this in mind, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He is scheming against every believer in Jesus Christ. His scheme is to steal, kill, and destroy His scheme is to attack you, to pick a day when to come after you where everything hits you at once. 
it's like perfectly inopportune. It all hits you at once because he's hoping to take you down. He wants you to be jealous. He wants you to be frustrated. He wants you to be depressed. But our struggle is not against people. It's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist when? In the evil day. When it all hits. Because Satan will try to tell you a lie that you're no good and you're worthless. But if you're having a good day, it's hard for you to believe that. So he waits. He waits for the bad news to hit. And then he joins the cancer report with God must not love you. And he comes to you and he says the opposite of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. You're not blessed. Other people are blessed. You're not. Other people are chosen and forgiven. You're not. Other people are loved. Other people have hope. You can't. You're different. You're special. That's what the devil's going to come to you. Now, he's not going to knock on your door with an envelope that says, here's some lies I want you to believe. What he's going to do is he's going to whisper in your ear and in your heart in those moments, and you're going to think you have discovered something about yourself that no one else understands except for you. And the discovery is that Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is not true of you. He's going to attack your identity in the evil day. And because of the emotion of the bad news or the failure or the criticism or the loss is there, that lie is going to feel true. And if you don't recognize it and you bite the lie and believe it, he'll pull you into depression. He'll pull you into confusion. He'll pull you into defeat. He'll pull you into inactivity. You'll quit praising God. You'll quit sharing your faith. You'll quit praying because God's not listening to my prayers. And even though the emotions and the feelings are all there, Job, God still loves you. He is sufficient. Your identity in heaven has not changed. It is an evil day. Stand firm in the evil day. Lift the shield of faith in the evil day. Remember that helmet of salvation that you're saved in the evil day. When you fail, you have the righteousness of Christ in the evil day. In fact, in the evil day, pull out the word and go on the offense. In the evil day, advance the gospel. Let's, let's advance the gospel with this bad news. With the, with, when something bad hits, you respond being strong in the Lord. And the world is going to say, how can you respond like that in those circumstances? How can you be praising God and joy when that just happened to you? Because it doesn't define you. What God has said defines you. So, brother and sister, when someone attacks or rebukes or slanders, when you fail, lose, or suffer, put on the armor. Remember the fact that you're blessed and beloved and chosen and accepted and forgiven and adopted and empowered and you have a home in heaven. If their words are not true, lift that shield of faith. Block those fiery darts without flinching. You are God's beloved child. You have a perfect, powerful, rich, loving, heavenly father who does not change. No problem is too difficult for him to handle. No hurt is too hard for him to comfort. No resource is beyond his ability to supply. So look in the mirror and preach the gospel to yourself. Look in the mirror and pull out Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 and say, Stephen, 
You're blessed. You're loved. You're chosen. I know you don't feel like it, but those feelings will catch up later on. We're going to believe the truth, and we're going to stand on the word, and we're going to move forward by faith. And we will be more like Jesus when we start acting like he did when he was attacked. Let's pray together. If you're here this morning and you've never believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, you've never given your heart to him, today is the day of salvation. And we have excellent news for you. We cannot recommend Jesus enough to you this morning. This world is broken and we're broken. But Jesus is perfect. He has transformed our lives. He died on the cross and rose again from the grave. And the Bible says you cannot earn salvation or forgiveness. You can never do enough. So God sent Jesus and he died the death. You deserve to die. He paid the price that you could never pay. And he's offering you something that you could never earn out of his love and kindness. And that is forgiveness of sins. So this morning, we are preaching a gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we're communicating to you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Pray a prayer where you say, God, I don't understand it all, but I'm broken. I'm a sinner. Take my life and forgive me. I'm giving you my life. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is not just a historic fact, and it is, but it is a living, transformational truth. And it can transform your life in 2021. And God answers the prayers and adopts into his family those that believe in his son. First John says, he who has the son has life, and he who does not have the son does not have life. So we invite you this morning, not to give your heart to Sherwood Baptist Church, but to give your heart to Jesus Christ. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you struggle with depression, I hope the truths of the word of God this morning will get anchored in your head and in your heart. And you will be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. That from this day forward, you will quit letting your feelings, your desires, or the opinions of other people define you. Because they don't. And you will let the God that created you and knows you and owns you and has authority over you, let him define you. Because he does a really good job of it. And what he does lasts. So this morning, for every believer, I think it would be good for us to pray this morning. Lord, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open the eyes of my heart and my mind to know who you are. To know who I am in Christ. To know the power of the resurrection of Jesus that I have inside of me through your Holy Spirit, to know that I have a home in heaven and forgiveness of sins. Let us not let the devil steal these truths out of our hearts. Let us be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Father, this morning, we thank you, our perfect Father. All of this is to the praise of the glory of your grace. Because of the kindness that you have poured out on us. We don't deserve it, Lord, but we thank you. 
Lord, open the eyes of our hearts to know the width, the length, the depth, the height of the love of our Heavenly Father for us. And Lord, we pray that this church and the believers in this city would become strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And when the devil attacks where God is working, he's going to attack this church because we know you're working here. So Lord, when he attacks, help us to remember who we are. Help us to remember who you are and what you've done for us. Help us to be strong. Strong in who we are. Strong in what we have in you. To walk in love. To live out the life of Christ. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing to the Lord. And you come to the altar as the Lord leads.